Growing Up Baby with Haley Zimak. It can be the people around you who have your very best interest at heart that can scare you the most. Be careful going down those stairs. You were so pregnant and could fall. Or are you sure you want to drive with a newborn on the highway? What if you get into an accident? It got me thinking about those dark, anxious, irrational thoughts that cross your mind during a time when your instincts are heightened like never before. I want to mention that some of the imagery and intrusive thoughts discussed in the following segments are graphic in nature, so please take care. Hilter Dawson spent 16 years as a health promotion consultant at Best Start Resource Centre before retiring this summer. She now works as a freelance consultant for those in need of her support and shared her knowledge on how, when, and why intrusive thoughts come to mind. How common are intrusive thoughts and images for new parents? And if you can give us some examples. So um, I looked at a very recent article that was uh, published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. It's from 2021, so just last year. And they did uh, some studies with um, women who just had their babies and actually during pregnancy too. They found that about 9% could be diagnosed with an obsessive compulsive disorder. And that sort of the symptoms started during pregnancy got worse towards the end of pregnancy, early postpartum, usually eight weeks was about the worst, and then slowly getting better after that. But up to nine months, they diagnosed people with that. It is, of course, much more common to have thoughts and images and even compulsions, but not necessarily have a full postpartum mood disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. It's a bit of a guess, uh, probably at least anywhere between 20 and 40. The actual thoughts may be much higher. Thoughts of sort of heightened anxiety are quite common in pregnancy, late pregnancy and early postpartum. Okay. What is it about the eight-week mark that you think is significant? Yeah, I think that's still the getting to know the baby piece, the really early, you know, like this little life I'm responsible for. And it's usually by six to eight weeks that you start to, I know people think they should have this automatic bond and, you know, that, but that's not always so, right? It's often takes a month or two because parents, before a parents feel comfortable in their skin as parents and I think that's when they start to feel a little more comfortable with all the tasks just with the whole parenting and you know who they are and who their baby is babies smile around four to six weeks I always think that's a critical piece because it gives parents a little bit of a reward Because up till then, it's like, oh my goodness, baby is crying. Am I doing the right thing? I don't know. I don't have a clue, right? So, and once that there's a bit more of a response, you know, sort of a a two-way street and parents become more comfortable with that. Mm, That totally makes sense. So I have about a five and a half month old, um, but I do remember having some of those really worried and anxious thoughts around, you know, yeah, the first couple of months. Uh, One of them was every time we had bath time, I would picture him slipping out of my grasp, uh, hitting his head on the side, cracking his head on the porcelain tub. It was so real and vivid to me. Um, It was awful. But in reading and research for this podcast, even though it's disturbing, it is a fairly common scenario to consider, is it not? Yes, it is. It's actually very normal. I mean, it's a daily task for the baby or more, more or less daily. And 
to see the dangers of is is normal, right? So, you know, you want to be a little more aware rather than when you're giving yourself a bath, right? It's definitely normal for a parent to be aware of the inherent risks within a bath. And it's strange that it becomes so graphic for some parents. And that can be so distressing, right? Like you saying, you saw that graphic, the baby hitting his head on the porcelain tub and other parents feel, you know, if they go down the stairs, they could drop the baby and they see the baby, you know, falling down the stairs or being in a car that the seatbelt comes apart or something like that. And often it ends up being one thought that they fix on, but sometimes it's it's more than that. So in some ways, I don't know, is this kind of our lizard brain, you know, reflex must protect, protect this new little life? Can it be a, a good thing sometimes? I mean, obviously, depending on how debilitating these thoughts can be or how intrusive, but to make sure I'm double checking that scar seat or to make sure I'm extra careful in the in the tub. I, I agree. It's uh, our lizard brain preparing us. And for some, for many people, it goes almost unnoticed. It's the thought, you know, oh my goodness, I this baby could slip and drown. I must make sure I hold on to him properly or, you know, that kind of thing. And that would be a, a normal response, right? But when it comes just out of the blue, you're like almost shocked by the thought, it starts to get more difficult to to handle. Okay, uh, how do we know then that it's a normal thought versus something more serious, something bordering on postpartum depression, anxiety? Um, how do we differentiate those those types of thoughts? So one thing I want to say to that, it's never any harm to err on the side of caution. You know, if somebody's worried about their thoughts, their images, compulsions that may come out of that, it's always a good thing to check in with a professional or in some or something knowing that it is becoming a problem is if it starts to interfere with daily life if it starts to interfere with bonding with a baby and with enjoyment of having a baby. Those, I think, are important parts to see. And I would imagine, too, I mean, the thoughts that I was having, for instance, is I'm going to take all the care in the world, but this terrible thing is still could potentially still happen. So I'll be extra careful, um, which is also different than a thought from perhaps I, you know, will be the one doing harm to the to the baby, correct? Yes, yes. And those I think are the more distressing thoughts. Like I've heard of parents who's, you know, are chopping something up for, for their supper, for their dinner, and suddenly see the knife going into the baby in the head, right? Those are things that they become when they become more irrational and you can't just say, yes, this is something that could potentially happen and I'm going to take extra care. If it's beyond that, then it it certainly needs to have some more attention. Thoughts that are also accompanied by compulsive behavior. Um, yes. Can you speak to any of those? I did this a lot in the first couple of weeks, making sure he was breathing I would wake up many, many times in the night. Is that something parents just kind of have to go through or or what? I think initially they do. It's the, I remember that too, uh, checking that the baby was breathing, right? And saying, you know, even to my husband, can you hear her? Can you hear her? Can you feel her breath? You know? Um, Yeah, so, I mean, some of that is, as I say, something you have to go through until you get that 
comfort level. And yet, when it becomes, it can become to the point that it's disturbing for the parent as well as the baby. You know, if somebody not only checks that the baby is breathing by listening quietly, but actually wakes the baby every you know, 30 minutes or an hour is neither good for the baby nor for the actual parent, right? Um, or changing the diapers so frequently or washing everything constantly. And I think another obsession and compulsion can be actually around the baby um, becoming sick from something. And I think that could be a real problem at the moment that for some people that can be a real trigger you know with COVID and all the things that are going on Uh, and then it's hand washing and washing off any kind of baby equipment and you know or not wanting to take the baby anywhere to be meet anyone because they're worried about that so that would become a compulsion as well and I think again the more um, an obsessive thought turns into a compulsion the more it becomes starts to interfere with daily life and this becomes distressing and needs some outside help. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I did want to ask you um, if you have any tactics or tools that you can share on how to mitigate intrusive thoughts or compulsive behavior. Uh, because I was reading something, it was out of Harvard, I believe, and they asked participants they could think of anything they wanted except a white bear. So, of course, participants think of a white bear. And I think sometimes with thoughts, the more you try not to think about yeah. them, the more ingrained they become. So, do you have any? advice or guidance on that. I know that article about the white bear too, yes. Um, and you're so right, you know, and that becomes that really distressing piece too. And it becomes the constant that starts to drive the obsession and the compulsions then, because the more you're, you know, you say, I must not think about the white bear, then, you know, the more you think about it, right? Um, but talking about it is definitely a way that helps. Usually parents are very, very afraid to talk about it because you think you're, you know, a bad parent. People will write you off as crazy, even your own partner, right? You don't want to talk. But that's a really important piece because one, it makes parents realize this was a really irrational thought. I mean, it had a rational meaning initially, but it's become an irrational thought. That's, you only start to get to that when you start to talk about it. So it's good to talk to somebody else about it. Ideally, someone you can trust, a good friend, a partner, somebody that that's often the first step, another parent, because many parents will say, oh my goodness, I had the same thing or had something very similar. So get help. Yeah, never think it's you know, not important enough, or you should hide it, or there are groups out there. There's lots of online help, but you can even stay fairly anonymous as well if you don't have someone in your circle of friends. And it may not need to be professional help. And if it does need to be professional help, there is professional help out there. Seeking, finding, asking for help. It can be difficult, despite the fact that as many as one in five people have mental health problems in pregnancy or after birth. Dr. Lucy Barker is a psychiatrist at Women's College Hospital in Toronto. She works closely with new parents who are mentally unwell, either during or after pregnancy. Please note the general information provided is for informational purposes only and is not professional medical advice, diagnosis, treatment, or care, nor is it intended to be a substitute. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider to discuss any questions you may have. Dr. Barker, when we talk about the work you do in terms of perinatal mental health, what are your patients experiencing? What are they coming to you with? 
Yeah, so I work as a perinatal psychiatrist as part of a multidisciplinary team, and we see pregnant and postpartum people for mental health assessments and follow-up care um, kind of across the spectrum um, of mental health challenges. So we see people uh, for kind of the full range of mental health concerns, including depression, anxiety, trauma-related conditions, bipolar disorder, psychosis, and substance use disorders, and others as well. Um, and some of the people we're seeing have mental health conditions that started prior to pregnancy and others have new onset mental health concerns during pregnancy uh, or in the postpartum period. How do we know the difference between the so-called baby blues, regular paranoid thoughts, or something more serious like a mood disorder? Yeah, so I would say that's a great question. Um, I would say to people, you know, if, if someone's struggling at all with mental health um, or wondering if what they're experiencing is kind of quote-unquote normal, that it would be important to get support. And symptoms can really look different from person to person and, of course, can really vary depending on the issue. Uh, so for depression and anxiety, some common symptoms, including feeling very down and not being able to enjoy things, sleeplessness, even when baby's sleeping and feeling constantly worried. You mentioned paranoia, and we always want to differentiate, um, you know, paranoia is, uh, you know, psychosis, which is, you know, would be an emergency and requires immediate support um, from sometimes anxious thoughts. Um, and either way, the kind of best way to do that is to seek support from a healthcare provider. And I do understand symptoms vary, but can you give us, and, and you touched on it briefly, but what are some examples of things that just aren't normal in terms of perhaps thoughts when the baby uh, is born and at home or some compulsive behaviors that have developed? Yeah, so, you know, it, and it does really vary. Um, you know, sometimes with depression, people find that they you know, really aren't able to enjoy things that they normally would be able to enjoy. You know, difficulty bonding with baby. You know, new parents tend to be pretty sleep deprived. And so if you're not able to sleep when baby's sleeping, that's usually kind of concerning. Anxiety is also very common um, during this time and, you know, can manifest in different ways. Often there's kind of can be kind of OCD-like features, whether that's an obsessive compulsive disorder or kind of some features as, par as part of another disorder or kind of worries that just really won't go away. Um, you know, and even when, you know, other people around you are kind of saying, you know what, it's fine. Um, and that kind of persistent worry um, is important to really seek support. Of course, if there's any kind of emergency symptoms, for example, uh, suicidal thoughts, thoughts where kind of thinking is really um, really out of kind of keeping with one's normal and, you know, wondering if there's kind of psych psychotic thinking going on, then that's really important to seek care immediately uh, using crisis resources, not calling 911 or going to the emergency department. Okay. What are some of the tools that a person can use, let's say, on their own versus the, the tools that you employ um, to someone who is actually under your care? In terms of what can be used by the individual, I mean, there's there are many different types of kind of self-help options out there, and some have more evidence backing them up than others. It's hard to recommend kind of like one specific thing without, because everyone's situation is different. For some people, you know, doing some grounding strategies, for example, taking some deep breaths, taking, you know, moments of kind of uh, mindfulness, things like that can, can be really uh, helpful. But I also you know, really would encourage someone to, you know, speak to their family physician, their primary care provider. Is someone more susceptible during and after pregnancy if they already have a history of mental health issues or can it also just, you know, strike out of the blue? For sure. So definitely having um, a personal history. So having experienced depression, anxiety in the past or any other kind of mental health concern, there's always that risk of recurrence. Um, and uh, so they're going to be at 
you know, someone who has a history of depression is going to be at a higher risk uh, typically than someone who doesn't. There are also a whole kind of host of other factors that can put someone at higher risk. For example, having a family history, um, having experienced interpersonal trauma and discrimination and social stressors. Um, if we think about the perinatal period specifically, it's a period of a lot of life change and stress and hormonal changes can play a role for some people as well. Um, you know, that said, the contributing factors can look very different from one person to another. And for some people, it can really feel like it comes out of the blue. Um, and for some people, you know, who, who don't, you know, for some people, this is a recurrence of something that's happened in the past. For some people, it's an ongoing concern. And now, you know, they're, they're learning how to manage it. Uh, their mental health during the prenatal period. And for other people, this is kind of new onset. So if someone becomes pregnant and has a history of mental health issues, should they seek out treatment right away, even if they're not exhibiting any signs of depression or anxiety? So, you know, I often recommend even before pregnancy, so in the pregnancy planning phase, getting care for preconception care and speaking to, so at that point, it would typically be someone's primary care provider, so their family physician or nurse practitioner, you know, and speaking about their concerns and, and what supports are needed may vary. Uh, so for someone who has, you know, say a history of bipolar disorder, then they may get connected to supports right away. For, for other people, um, it may be that, you know, their family physician is going to monitor them more closely or they're going to connect it to other resources. So it really varies person by person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think what scares me the most too is I had a really good friend who, you know, no issue of anything became pregnant with her first, um, had that baby and just suffered immensely. And I think she was also shocked by how it just came completely out of the blue. Um, And then again, I guess it goes back to just making sure that if you are having these types of thoughts, you seek treatment. I just, I understand that it can be difficult to not necessarily know what you're dealing with if it's the first time in your life you've ever dealt with something like that. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's really sometimes it's hard to recognize. It's also, it's a period of so much change. So many life changes going on at the same time. So many relationships are changing. It's it's hard to kind of almost, um, some, for some people kind of recognize because the, their life is so different. It can be sometimes hard to recognize what's going on, um, especially if it's something they haven't uh, experienced before. So, you know, again, I think it kind of goes back to kind of going to that, that healthcare provider with whom one has like an ongoing relationship and saying, you know, this is what I'm experiencing. What do you think is 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 this kind of normal? Should I be experiencing this? Um, and then that can really start that conversation and make sure that someone's getting the appropriate support. Mm-hmm. Is there a like? Let's say you know you have one child and this happens. Does that necessarily mean it's going to happen with the second child or the third? Or maybe you go through two pregnancies and everything's fine, and then it happens with the third. Is there any type of of pattern that you've you've noticed? So, you know, definitely, you know, having, uh, if we're talking about kind of depression, anxiety, uh, definitely having, you know, a history of that will increase the risk of having, you know, a, de- a depressive or um, depressive episode or anxiety in, in during pregnancy and postpartum. And for certainly people who have a history of, you know, perinatal uh, depression, anxiety, they're, they're at increased risk again in a future pregnancy doesn't mean it's going to be 100% for sure, um, but that risk is increased. Acknowledging every person and plan is different. What are some of the treatment tactics that you employ, like psychotherapy, for instance? 
you know, I think the psychotherapies that we use in the perinatal period are pretty similar to, to those outside. Often people use cognitive behavior therapy uh, approaches. So CBT is, is very common. Interpersonal therapy is very common. And there's always kind of research underway for different types. There's both group and individual. And, you know, um, in our program, we use a lot of group therapy. And it can be really powerful to be, you know, with people kind of at a similar life stage, who may, may be experiencing similar types of, of things to have that kind of group therapy experience. Mm-hmm. And when you mention group therapy, I think that's likely a good reminder that you're not alone in going through this. This is not uncommon and this is not unusual and that they will be able to get through it uh, with the right help and support in place. That's so true. It's so important. I think a lot of people feel very alone uh, in these experiences. You know, we see people where, you know, it's like, I've always wanted to become a parent. I've always wanted to become a mother. And now I'm feeling this way and feeling really like sometimes shame, sometimes feeling stigmatized. Um, and and that can really prevent people from getting, you know, unfortunately prevent people from getting the help that that's going to help get them better. And so, you know, um, it, it's a really, it can be a really tough period for a lot of people. It's a period of a lot of change, a lot of stress. And it's a period where, you know, there is this risk for, you know, uh, having challenges with one's mental health. It can be really t- tough for people sometimes to kind of make that first step uh, to getting support for a whole host of reasons. As awareness of perinatal mental health concerns grows, I think more and more people are seeking support, but there, there are still barriers um, and we're still working to make sure that, that we can reduce barriers to people getting care. And Dr. Barker, is there anything else you'd like people to know or you can share maybe about some of those barriers or stressors that, that people face. It's a period of such change. You know, there's often shifts in one's romantic relationships, friendships, family relationships, work, and really identity for many people, not to mention all the physical changes associated with pregnancy and giving birth. You know, for people with a history of childhood trauma, it can come up in ways that are really distressing. Um, And then, you know, there's also a lot of kind of inequities as well that can contribute. For example, a lot of the societal expectations during the perinatal period can be very gendered with a lot of heteronormativity. All these kind of factors kind of play in. And so it's, you know, um, can be there can be a lot going on. And if you're struggling, like, you're really not alone. There's growing awareness of perinatal mental health and there's more and more services uh, available to help support you. And, and I really, you know, encourage people that, you know, even if you're wondering, Am I struggling? I'm not sure. I, I can't really tell. You know, speak to your healthcare provider because they're going to be able to, to to help guide you through the process of figuring out what's going on and what kinds of supports that you need. On part two, an expectant first-time mother says it shouldn't have happened to her. So I had a great job with great benefits, a supporting husband. Financially, we were in a great place, family nearby. Uh, So we had kind of check the boxes on everything that you would want in your first pregnancy. I feel so lucky because I always, I checked the boxes on everything I needed to do to take care of my baby. So I always made sure that the child was fed, taken care of it. My thoughts never, because there's some postpartum depression where you would want to harm your baby. And I never wanted to harm him. I just didn't want him. If you think you may be suffering from postpartum depression and need help, the Canadian Mental Health Association is a good place to start. Connects Ontario is 24-7 and has phone, text, email, or instant messaging options. Thanks for listening. Until next time.